Obama's got a brand new budget, and Jeff Immel is buying a whole lot of stock. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. David, the voters of D.C. have just voted to decriminalize possession of marijuana. Are you making plans to move from Virginia to D.C.? No. I, taxes I, are I, higher in D.C. I, I can't move across there. Yes. afford them like you. Yes, but taxes, but you, you can. benefit. I know, I know you've got just like those stockpiles of, of yeah, yeah. that stockpile of marijuana yeah. that you're waiting to be able to use. Mm-hmm. It's growing. Yeah. I got a nice sunroom, a greenhouse <laughs> in my apartment. So you're not moving to D.C.? Nah, sorry. All right. Uh, moving on to the first headline. First headline of the day comes from the Wall Street Journal. 2015 budget this year taxing Wall Street is bipartisan. So, David, we've got President Obama's new budget, $3.9 trillion, if I've got that number right, give or take Whatever. $100 billion, who cares? The highlight for us, for this show, is the fact that Obama's budget includes the financial crisis responsibility fee, and this mirrors, not name, but it mirrors what the Republicans were doing in their budget proposal, basically saying we're going we're gonna to tax the biggest banks, we're going we're gonna to make them pay extra taxes. As the headline says, this appears to be bipartisan. You can't get mm-hmm. the both, both sides to agree on almost anything, but you can get them to agree on we're going to tax banks more. Yes, and I'm not sure if it will, it'll pass. Do you think it'll pass, first of all? Obama's budget? Or kind of just this tax? Do you think this tax will be an actual thing? I don't know. A budget's got to pass. And both sides hate each other so, so much. I don't know whether that's going to happen. I, I, my first thought but, was... But yes, I, I mean, I, I think you can get agreement on that. My first thought was, I don't care, and this is just a small tax. But I thought about it more, and I think it is somewhat of a big deal here, when you're t- especially talking about the big players, and if it's a tax on assets over a certain threshold, that's actual money that's flowing to shareholders. And over the last couple of years, as valuations have been below historical norms, people have said, well, it's below, it's because there's uncertainty about profitability coming back. And we've kind of said, yeah, that's not a big deal, it'll come back. But these incremental hits do make a difference in the long run, whether it be a return on equity of 12% or 11%. It doesn't sound like a lot, mm. but it can add up over a year. So I am starting to think maybe valuations do deserve to be below historical norms because of these new regulations. Wow, that's a... I'm turning a page, I think. Wow, that's a really... How, how much below historical norms? Because, I mean, they're significant... Depending on what you consider historical norms to be, they're significantly below historical norms. Well, when you look at just the tax, it doesn't seem like a huge thing, but these incremental changes take a hit. You look at the Volcker Rule. We say it's not a huge deal, but that's incremental Well, okay, cost. okay. Let's, let's, let's take it this. So you, you bring up the Volcker Rule. So it's the Volcker Rule. It's this tax which targets the biggest banks. Mm-hmm. So is this an argument to say, skip out on the J.P. Morgans of the world. Look at these smaller banks that don't have that kind of asset, uh, that, that kind of uh, balance sheet that's going to attract these kind of hits. No, because I still think the valuation's attractive, despite <laughs> the fact that they're not going to turn there. But I'm saying the incremental stuff, it's it does it add, add up. up when you think about it. the tax, the Volcker Rule, the Card Act. Uh, you look at interchange regulation. That's all revenue that or, or cost that's coming into the system. So it does make a difference. Well, I'm not going to be naive when, to when, it. You, when you consider that a lot of that has already gone into effect. Yes. And with that in effect, J.P. Morgan is still saying exactly. we're going to earn 15% on our equity this year. Right, and I, I still think multiples can move up, but this is the argument to say that multiples are not going to go to 2005, 2006 levels. 
That's what I'm saying. Okay, back, back to the tax, just to, to wrap up. I don't think that this makes sense other than it's good politics. Mm-hmm. This gets money to the government, and it hits a group that nobody's going to get up in arms about. If you say, we're going to tax banks more, nobody's going to say, oh, no, don't do that. Well, the banks will. The banks will, yeah. but they don't have much credibility right now. True. Second headline. Well, we have a, we have a second headline of the first headline. Oh, that's right. So that's sticking right. with the budget, we had a financial regulator calls Obama budget woefully, woefully insufficient. This is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and Our they got children. a budget of... What was it, $280 million? Yep, which was... He's saying this is nowhere near what we need. It was, it was actually up not an insignificant amount from the previous budget for the CFTC. Mm-hmm. But the CFTC has uh, an expanded oversight now. And, and I think, you know, what's interesting to look at... Now, we don't want to say that regulators need to have the same budget as the companies that, they, that they're regulating. Mm-hmm. But at Goldman Sachs, and remember, the budget for the CFTC, and this is one of a number of regulators, but the budget CFTC, that's salaries, that's benefits, but then that's also all the operating costs. Salaries and benefits alone at Goldman Sachs were $12.6 billion in 2013. $12.6 billion. Yes, yes. And the Much budget, smaller. And the budget for the CFTC is $280 million. I mean, you are talking like, in terms of firepower, this is, this is like, um, I don't know, some small township going up against the, the entire United States. I think this is more politics as well. It's I hope the CFTC but... is reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, because that's the battle that they're fighting. That's the battle that the regulators Have you fight. considered maybe they're just saying they're covering themselves a little bit in case something blows up? People point to them and say, you should have done something about this. Well, we asked for more money, and they didn't give it to us, so maybe this is politics as well. Everything's politics, David. I like that. I'll let you read the actual second headline. All right, actual second headline from the Wall Street Journal. Molus IPO filing shows rise of small advisors. So we have Molus going public here, yeah. uh, joining the ranks of the public independent investment banks, Evercore, Greenhill, Lazard. Interested? Just, j- this, was, this firm was just founded in 2007. Yeah. It's basically a bunch of guys, uh, most of whom worked together at DLJ mm-hmm. up until that... Uh, Donald Lufkin, Jen Reddy, back until 2000, uh, left to go to UBS, worked yep. at UBS until 2007, and then all jumped ship to, fo- to found Molis. D- this company, since 2007, has done some absolutely monster deals. Monster deals. So, so there's definitely credibility here. But my question is, to, to, to myself, under what circumstances do you buy a standalone investment bank? And for an upstart like this, Right now, this is all on Molus himself. This is all on the CEO. Um, so right now, you're buying basically a piece of him. Because he's, he's amazing. He's, I mean, in the world of investment bankers, kind we don't of wanna, a big deal. don't want to put them all on pedestals here, but this guy is a quote-unquote rainmaker. Not quote-unquote. He, he, he just is yeah. a rainmaker. But, but you're basically buying a piece of him, sort of like when Evercore went public, you were buying into Altman. Yeah. Right? Although... Altman, maybe when they started Evercore, was smart about the fact that he didn't name it Altman Securities or something like that. Um, so, so I think if you're investing in Molis right now, the company, the bet is that they can turn what's basically just him into a brand. Mm-hmm. If that becomes a brand and it can survive without him being at the helm anymore, without him making it rain, uh, then, maybe, then maybe this is a good bet. I think it says something about 
well, the time they're going public as well. They they must think this is an opportune time for some of these partners to uh, sure. to be able to cash out when you look at the the multiples of the overall stock market and of that particular. Well, the mo- yeah, the multiples of the the standalone investment banks of Evercore of Greenhill, pricey attractive. maybe. Um, could be, you could say they're justified, and I've said they're justified by how they're growing. But in terms of the enthusiasm for that, enthusiasm for this niche market, it seems like a good time for them to go public. So can't fault them there. Not not necessarily. I don't think. I'd be careful. Let me put it that way. I'd be careful about saying, well, this is the tipping point. This is where everything is going to go downhill because when we go back to when the the PE shops started to go public, uh, Fortress, Fortress, I believe, was really the first one. And it wasn't until a ways after that 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 everything started to kind of unwind. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, (laughs) we we did see that process play out until the point where Blackstone went public, got a tremendous valuation, and then cratered. Yeah. Um, So if this continues, if we continue to see uh, banks, securities firms, maybe more independent uh, M&A shops go public, keep an eye out. Be careful. So it sounds like you're not too interested, not really putting it on your radar. I'm going to put it on my radar. I think it's interesting. I like – you don't like the business model as much, but I like – the business model of the standalone investment bank. So I'm putting it on my radar. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about it. It's not on my radar, but we'll look forward to hearing more about it. More for me. (laughs) Third headline. This one comes from DealBook. Immelt spends his cash bonus on GE stock. By by the way, is Jeff Immelt looking like he put on a few pounds? I mean, I I don't don't mean to go there, but but he just, he does. He kind of looks a little bit bigger than the last. If you make that money, you can can eat. I guess so. I guess so. So we don't talk about GE a lot, but I, I feel like we we can we can talk about it a little bit because it's got the big GE capital arm mm-hmm. that may be hitting the public markets pretty soon. You like this? You wanted them to buy, use their own cash to buy stock, right? Yes, yes. We were talking about this recently, and we were talking about the ways that executives are paid. And I said, pay them in cash. And when they think it's a good idea to buy stock, they'll go out there, they'll take their cash, they'll buy the stock. Immelt's mm-hmm. doing that. He took his two point six million dollar cash bonus and he bought GE stock. I like it. Good on, good on can you, I take, Jeff. Can I take the cynical view? You can of do it, whatever right? you want. In the scheme of his net worth, this is like pennies for us. Maybe it's not, not pennies. pennies. Not pennies. Don't, but this don't. isn't this isn't a sign that. Well, it's better than him selling. I guess you could say it's better than him selling, and it's better than him just collecting options that the company gives to him. This is him taking cash. Think of all the wonderful things that two point six. I don't care what your net worth is. Two point six million dollars buys a lot of champagne and limos and, and private plane rides and all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, put Instead, it, in, put it into perspective. Instead, he's buying GE stock. He, his net worth is upwards of $100 million. So this okay, so, so let's say it's Okay, so let's say it's a couple hundred million dollars. For somebody with a $500,000 net worth, that's similar to, to putting... Like $1,000. No, no, no. Tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe. That's not an insignificant amount. Does this put GE more on your radar? We saw Warren Buffett up his stake, or Berkshire Hathaway up their stake in GE... Are you interested in this business, or is it just one that doesn't get you too excited? I don't know. That's, that's actually a good question. I haven't, I haven't looked at it recently. I, I think from a very general perspective, yes. Because the GE Capital business isn't a bad one. I don't think it's appropriate that, that, that a financer of that mm-hmm. size is tied in with GE because it kind of distracts from the rest of the business. Uh, but the core GE business itself, I think, is, it's, it's a good business. It's a solid business. Um, so maybe that's one that I need to look closer at. Um, but uh, ML certainly has rung the bell here. We don't want to look at past performance too much, but this stock has basically been a huge underperformer that's actually, coming out of the recession. That's actually so. a reason that I'd look at it even more. So 
I, I'd rather I'd rather look at a stock that hasn't performed that everybody's left behind, and that they'll have that reaction that they'll look at that chart and say, Yeah, where why would yeah, going? why would I want to invest in this stock? It's done nothing but go down. True. Then I go in and I say, Boom, All just right. like ML, just like Warren. Yeah, just like Warren and ML. And, and speaking of Warren, invested in GE. Personally? Well, not personally. Well, yeah, I said Berkshire. Berkshire. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't listen to you. You zone out. <laughs> All right, going on to the focus for today. Uh, on Wednesdays now, we're using our, our focus time to kind of talk through some more basic concepts. Today, we were uh, talking a little bit in the headlines about Molis, uh, its IPO. So I thought we'd break apart what it means to be a commercial bank versus an investment bank versus one of these hybrids that kind of does it all. Yeah. So, David, since you were talking about you, you like the investment bank model, why don't you break down a little bit what it means to be an investment bank? Uh, so the word investment bank since the financial crisis has been a little bit scary, and we've got a graphic here to kind of break out those three buckets there. So on the just investment banks, really? talking about the Evercores, the Green Hills, Lazard, they're not that complex of companies. They're really more of consulting companies, if you want to think about them that way. Most of their revenue is going to come from advising on transactions. They do, some of them do have trading and investing operations, but the majority of the business here is looking at M&A, mm-hmm. looking at buyouts, and giving their advisory services there, and they get fees for that. So it's not that complex of a business. When it comes down to value, valuing them, you want to look at it kind of from an earnings perspective, an operating business, uh, and try to value that. It can be hard, Mm-hmm. Because these things can be very cyclical, and you can't just say, "Well, they made 100 million this year, and that'll grow at five percent right. for 10 years." It doesn't work that. That would way. be a, that a big, big mistake. But in terms of valuing financial companies, this is one that you want to look at earnings more than kind of return on assets or uh, or book value. Yeah, exactly. So this is in the scheme of valuing. This one ties more closely to kind of to the, the price to earnings uh, valuation model here. So think about it as a fee business first. Is that fair? Sure. And, and a couple of things that I'd add to it. Management is a, is a big deal at, at an investment bank. Uh, I would say that in terms of judging the success and judging the presence of the bank, most, most of these banks on their, home, on their website will have a list of past pending transactions, yeah. uh, transactions that they're working on. Uh, that's a good signal of, does this bank get good deals done? Um, and, and then brand. Brand is a big thing. In, that, in, in this business, brand will get bankers in the mm-hmm. door. Um, and, and you actually, you, you had Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley in with the integrated, so we'll hit that in a little bit. But I think those are really more, a little bit more in the um, investment bank, but we can debate that in a second. Well, I had them on there more because of their asset base, because they generate sure. a lot of returns from the assets and actual, they do have the advising, but they're in so many other businesses. So I that's fair. That's fair. So c- commercial banks, to hit on that real, real quickly, this, this is the sim- more simple banking business. Mm-hmm. Commercial banks, and again, uh, we've got this up on this chart, Capital One, U.S. Bank Corp., Fifth Third, M&T, Huntington. These are good examples of, of more, com- more pure commercial mm-hmm. banks. Take in deposits, have those deposits on the balance sheet, lend them out, whether it be to residential, uh, for residential real estate, for companies to finance themselves, um, and, and in some cases, buy securities, buy mortgage yeah. backs, and then offer other thing. services, fee-based services. And we should say, a lot of those companies do have small investment banking arms, like U.S. Bancorp. They have a small, very, very small investment banking team for specific needs. But on the whole, it's just it's kind of bank. yeah, de minimis in, yeah. in terms of its. And, and so these businesses, you are going to want to look at the return on assets. You are going to want to be looking at the return on equity, and the valuation is going to be on uh, on a book value basis. Yeah. 
management here, and maybe I should just say management is really important everywhere, but management here is important. Um, you're going to want to look at loan quality. That's going to be a key metric here with the commercial banks. Yes. Um, what are their, well, it's, it's loan quality combined with what they make on the loans. Because mm-hmm. again, if, if you look at the loan losses on a credit card portfolio, it's going to be different than if you look at loan losses on uh, highly collateral, collateralized um, real estate yeah. uh, lending. So that's the commercial. And then you've got the integrated, which kind of brings everything together. Mm-hmm. So tell me why Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, let's, we can look at that chart one more time. So again, we've got Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Bank of America, all part of this integrated group. Well, looking at, at Goldman Sachs, and I, more so Goldman Sachs is more integrated than a Morgan Stanley, I think. Because Goldman Sachs, they do have a big kind of, they call it their investing and lending arm, mm-hmm. which is them making investments, private investments, et cetera. It's somewhat of a black box. If you're going to call Be- Goldman Sachs a black box, you're going to be looking at that investing and lending. They do have their M&A advisory. They have their fixed income trading, their underwriting. So they spanned the whole globe of finance a little bit, investment yeah, banking. Really- um, so that's why I threw them into, into the integrated. And when you talk about valuing these integrated companies, this is when it's more important to break it into kind of a sum of parts. Because you can look at the advising business and say, all right, how am I going to value that? And then you can look at the kind of corporate banking model and say, all right, this is the the multiple on the book that I'm going to give. So it's more important to break these into parts here. Right. And and one area that we haven't even talked about yet, which is a discussion for another time, but there's also the asset management. Mm -hmm. Asset management, for, for the integrateds, You've got some of that with the commercial banks, too. In some cases, you actually also have that with the investment banks. Um, But the asset management in Bank of America with Merrill Lynch, that's very important. At Morgan Stanley, that's very important. And so this is another another different line that you need to break out and be Mm -hmm. able to value. Um, but, but I think I do agree with you that in terms of calling Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs, putting them into one of these buckets, integrated makes the most sense because... In the investment banking bucket, we really do have more of that advisory and capital raising mm-hmm. business. Uh, once you add in the trading operations, you add in the, the big exposure to asset management, um, I, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs really do encompass a lot more. I think maybe maybe business. the way to think about it is they take a lot, they take on more risk on their balance sheet than kind of the yeah that's fair. The green hills yeah. of the world. Goldman Sachs will take on mm-hmm. a lot of risk for companies. So. so you've got three basically three different groups here, all of which call themselves banks of mm-hmm. some sort. But for investors, it's really important to understand exactly what that bank uh, means, what bank means in that case, how to value it, how to think about the business, mm-hmm. and, uh, and hopefully that gives a little bit of a basic overview. Cool. From there, let's go to the mailbag. We've got an email address, WTMI at fool.com. Please, 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 please send us an email. We love to get emails. We've got a question today from Joe Begley. Joe writes, I'm a junior at the University of Vermont, double majoring in Chinese and economics. That's aggressive. Good for you, Joe. <laughs> in my intermediate micro class, we're talking about how low interest rates and low confidence are resulting in banks pumping money into the stock market. My econ professor believes that because they're not lending, they believe the stock market is a better place to make money than making loans. I was wondering if you could elaborate on this a bit. Do you believe this is happening? And if you do, are you at all concerned? Do you think that when they pull their money out of the market to make more loans to the market, uh, to make more loans, the market will take a hit? Thanks for the question, Joe. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we love getting emails. David, do you see this happening? Because I don't. I do Let not me either. Okay. <laughs> I don't. So, so maybe Joe's economics professor is, is looking at something different than we are, looking someplace different than we are. But 
you can actually, you can very easily go into the filings for the banks and take a look at the balance sheets, take a look at where their capital is. And where Joe's economics professor is definitely right is that banks aren't making a lot of loans. And you can see that in the loan-to-deposit ratio. So when, when the market gets really heated, you'll typically you'll, you'll start to see banks hitting a loan-to-deposit ratio of 100% or even more. Yeah. So they're basically taking all of their deposits, lending them out, and in some cases, then some, which means they're getting funding from other sources as well. Right now, those loan-to-deposit ratios, I want to say they're, they're in the 70s and even 60s. I forget the exact numbers mm-hmm. off the top of my head. But in that range... But the excess money, it's not going into the stock market. Right. The, these banks do own some stocks, and, but a lot of it's that's essentially asset nothing. Right. It's essentially nothing. If they do to any significant degree, it's through the asset management arms. Mm-hmm. What they are doing is they're going into the debt markets, they're going into the asset-backed securities markets, and they're putting money there, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, sort of like investing elsewhere, but sort of not like investing elsewhere, because in the asset-backed security market, you've got mortgage-backed securities, you've got collateralized securities that are backed by credit card loans mm-hmm. and the like. So basically what they're doing is they're using that as a way to stay more liquid. Yeah. Um, I, I think when, when the economy starts to turn back around, well, starts to turn back around, when the economy picks up a little bit more, when there's more lending demand, and especially when there are better interest rates, when uh, banks are better compensated for the risk that they take for lending, I think we'll see them actually do more lending, maybe increase that loan-to-deposit ratio. For now, I think this is a way for them to maintain a greater amount of liquidity. Yep, because it's really easy to sell a U.S. Treasury or a agency mortgage-backed security, right? It, right, and you can As also... As opposed you, to a loan, which is kind of... You can also manage your duration a lot better. Mm-hmm. So, so whereas a loan, I mean, for a really simple case, if you just take a vanilla 30-year mortgage and put it on your balance sheet, you've got that on your balance sheet for 30 years. Banks don't normally do a whole lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas with a mortgage-backed security, you've got your pick of what kind of duration you want. Um, and so you can, you can have a duration of one, two years if you want this to fall off your balance sheet uh, in, in a shorter period of time. I'm glad you mentioned the asset management. We talked about 13Fs for hedge funds and stuff like that. If you type in a Bank of America 13F, and you look at it, it'll look huge. It'll look like they own every stock in the world, and it looks like their equity portfolio is enormous. Mm-hmm. But the way the asset managers work, that's really client money that is invested in those. It's not the bank's capital that's sitting in all those stocks. It's be- the way the filings work, they have to say like what their, what's the term? They're kind of a custodian for those clients right. there. They're investing it's, on it's, behalf well, it's, of them. It's in their name. It's in Bank of America's name, right. but it's client money. Exactly. So don't think that that's all Bank of America capital sitting in those stocks. All right, let's move on to our Rank It segment. We've got actually we've got a fun version of Rank It today. This is inspired by the fact that we just uh, os- it's Oscar season. We just passed the Oscars this past weekend. Mm-hmm. And so we are ranking, going back the last 10 years, ranking the best picture winners over the last 10 years. Top five. Top five. David, what is your list? Here's my list. Going number one, Hurt Locker. Number two, The Departed. Number three, Argo. Number four, No Country for Old Men. Number five, Slumdog Millionaire. The, Depart- the Departed at number two, really? It's a good movie. It is, it is a good movie. It's, it's entertaining. entertaining. Okay, let, let's put up my list real quick. Uh, I've got Slumdog Millionaire as number one. Hurt Locker is number two. 12 Years a Slave, number three. Million Dollar Baby, number four, and King's Speech, number five. I was debating as to whether I put the artist up there because I give... What? S- look, look, look. Don't, 
give me that. I give them so much credit for making such an enjoyable movie under the constraints that they put on themselves. But at the same time, it was just, it enjoyable? Yes. I watched the last like thirty minutes. I was like, really you did not you did not enjoy the artist. No, you're you're dead. I only watched you're the last dead thirty inside, minutes. Aren't you? It didn't make any sense. You're dead inside. No, no country for old men for you. That was good. It was that good. haircut. Was <laughs> I'm thinking about getting that haircut that Javier Bardem has. Maybe I, maybe I have to watch it again. Maybe I missed something. It's a good movie. But uh, how do you how do you judge what movies? Uh, you would put in that a list like that. Two ways. One, if it makes me want to go research it more. Two, if it's on TBS. If it's on TBS, I watch it. <laughs> if it's on TBS? Yeah. You know when they or have the old reruns? If the department if the departed is on, I'm watching it. What about wow. you? How do you judge it? Uh when a movie creates emotion without being schlocky. So so I mean a Kate Hudson rocom mm-hmm. can make you feel something on the inside, but that's because those writers are like, "Ha ha, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna tweak them." When a when a movie creates emotion without going there, I think that's a great movie. Slumdog Millionaire blew me away. Just so I, I thought it was so original. I thought it was so out of the box. I cried. I, I laughed. I cried. I I ate probably too much popcorn. I I have a popcorn problem. Let's let's go ahead and and quickly tie this in. Give give it a little bit of a business flavor here. Over those 10, I went through and I looked at the, dis- the distributors, the distribution deals mm-hmm. over those 10. Two of them uh, had 21st Century Fox doing distribution, four of them Time Warner, two of them Lionsgate, two Weinstein, one Viacom. So if you're looking for a winner in terms of the distributors, the, the movie distributors over the last 10 years for Best Picture, Time Warner looking pretty good. What was 12 Years a Slave? Do you know? Ah, oh, I, I, I didn't... Break them out for each one. Okay. Uh, uh, Lionsgate. I think it was... No, Lionsgate was the studio, actually. Gotcha. So that, that wasn't captured in here. I'm pretty sure Lionsgate was a studio. Uh, Summit Entertainment, which is the Lionsgate subsidiary. All right. All right. Uh, what, what do we have next? Twitter. Twitter, yeah. So I, I was so busy thinking about these great movies. <laughs> Finish this off, David. Twitter sphere. Number one. It's from Market Watch. Carl Icahn says, Even Washington, D.C. operates better than eBay. He says this is the worst corporate governance he's ever seen. My question is, why is he buying it then? Carl Icahn is, is, is a good investor. He's even better at hyperbole. Why Carl is he shorting Icahn it? He hates it so much. I don't get it. Because he wants PayPal. He wants the PayPal. The people demand the PayPal. The people want the PayPal. Second tweet. This comes from Balaji S. Srinivasan. I, I know I got that wrong. I'm so sorry, David. I hate you for doing that to me. It is usually much easier to save a dollar in costs than to make a dollar in sales. Wow. Interesting comment given what we've seen with the banks lately, what we've been talking about with the banks. It's all about cost cutting. Think he's right? I was thinking more from a personal perspective. Oh, Everyone okay. wants to make money investing, but we've had Morgan Housel on before. He says the biggest problem is people not saving enough. It's not David, about market beating returns. It's about not saving enough. David, I've eaten peanut butter and jelly every day for lunch for the last 10 years. Yeah, it's not I, you. I, I've calculated that my, that my lunch costs less than $2. Frugal. You've probably made more from doing that than you have investing. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe. <laughs> I, I'd hope that I made a decent amount of investing. All right, finish this off. Last tweet. It's from Huffington Post. It says, So college. We have a picture of a, of a coffee machine filled with water and someone making <laughs> oh, pasta in the coffee machine. Did you ever do this in college? <laughs> I did not ever do that. Most despicable kitchen thing you did in college or ever. 
Well, when I lived in the, I, I lived in a frat house for a very short period of a time. A lot of despicable things. We, a lot of despi- we did not have a kitchen, mm. but there were times when there would be, you know, a half-eaten burrito sitting around and not entirely clear how long it had been sitting around. And, it, you know, I wasn't a biology major, but I could see if Probably mold was growing on it. Probably. How about you? I lived in Spain for several months, and our sink did not have a garbage disposal. Ooh. Let's just say it got backed up, had to bring the plunger in there to take care of things. Uh, I, th- I think I've been there. Took the plunger sure, to the sink. Pretty sure I've been there. That's despicable. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show for today. You can find us on Twitter at TMF Financials. If you're not listening to us on podcast form, we're on iTunes. Go find us on iTunes. Find us on Swell. Find us on Stitcher. And you can also rate us on iTunes and let everybody know why they should be watching this show. Uh, I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here's David Hansen. We will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.